This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. This is episode 14, chapters 29 and 30. Sumner slogged his way downstream. His shirt was a bloody mess. Everything was ripped. His jacket had a hole through the sleeve to match the one in his shirt and the one in his arm. He hurt everywhere. His neck and shoulders felt like someone had been trying to twist his head off with their bare hands. He was bleeding from the cut below his brow. His legs were covered in tiny rodent bites and claw marks. And what's more, he was pissed off. But he was back on track now. He was heading to Maxine's last pinned location, and he would figure out what to do next after he got there. And there would be something to do next. He was not giving up on Maxine, and this insane planet would not keep him from her. It could throw bugs at him and rabid mice and that giant slug-slash-octopus thing, and he was just gonna keep coming. Then, there was a rumble. It was a strange sound. It was low, then it was loud, and felt like it was right on top of him. Then, it started to get more distant again. Then he saw it. It was the tug section of the Contiki, rising skyward, coming into view over the treetops. As Sumner watched it ascend, he thought back to Captain Lee and the scene with the bridge crew. Jesus, that crazy son of a bitch is attempting an early launch. For several minutes, he watched the truncated ship climb and climb, getting smaller and smaller, and he wondered what the implications of this were for the rest of them. He couldn't be sure. They were going to leave eventually anyway, but this could not be good. Just as Sumner thought that, just as he was about to turn back on his way, he saw the command section of the ship falter and hitched just a bit, and then he saw the explosion before he heard it. Dear God. All of those people, the crew, the soldiers, Sumner was stunned. He wanted to vomit. He wanted to shout at someone. He was alone, alone watching death in the sky, watching some kind of murder, helplessly. The air began to catch the debris as it emerged from the enormous burning cloud in the upper atmosphere. He watched it start to drift off to the south. Then he felt the slightest shift in the breeze on his face. Then he watched the flaming pieces 
of the command module of the Contiki shift direction midair, shifting from heading away from Sumner to heading right at him. Chapter 30 Maxine had never felt this way. She felt dumb and light and fizzy and like she wanted to be serious but also wanted to laugh out loud and like she wanted to do all of this at the same time. At least she felt this way whenever he was around and from the goofy expression that he kept trying to hide but that would keep creeping back onto his face in unguarded moments, she was pretty sure that he felt the same way she did. There was a ping and a dot blinking in the corner of her eye. New episodes of Paragon X. Save? Oh, yes. Paragon X, Cassell said. Yes. She downloaded the data to experience later. You know what that means? New episodes. And we have a node to see Crest 2. That's where they relay it from. Oh, wow. They started sifting through the newly established data stream. Their set autoclaim started grabbing all of their preferred stuff that came in from Sphere 8. But you never knew when you would find something new in the media feeds that you were less than instantaneous with. People passing by recognized the half their expression on their faces and started checking their own presets. Then everyone was tuned into the established node from Sphere 8. Cassell pulled a face. His lateral nostril twitched as it did when he was a little put off. Mm. I love almost all the experiences that come from 8, but man, their music is awful. He didn't like 8 music. She didn't like 8 music. It was fate. Another alert. New data coming from long-range scans. She could start the new stuff working into the nano's code now, but she would rather do it from her workspace down in the bay. She was in a very tactile place these days. She was all about the physical. Remote work, node-to-node cross-galactic relationships, relay plane sex. Not in the mood for those things lately. She seemed to really want to be in a space with things. It was a weird phase, but, you know, it was where she was at. Still, she popped down to a visual port in the bay to see if it was crowded. The image of Zeperol alone down there tweaking some kind of nanocode popped into her head and filed itself, and then she was back in this space with Cassell, which seemed to be the real physical space she wanted to be in. She was also in a real binary female place lately. She'd gone girl about a month ago and had yet to get old. Cassell, for his part, said that he was in a fairly binary, fairly male, fairly heterosexual space for the time being. He smiled at her. I'm assuming you saved Paragon? I did. Wanna keep it saved and we can experience it together later? Maybe. Maybe! He looked at her, his skin colored with exaggerated incredulity. He was cute when he was that color. Probably. Probably. Well, I guess it'll have to do. Now he shifted to a forlorn red. Since you're the 
Only one I want to experience it with. She smiled. Drop your schedule into my feed and I'll try to squeeze you in. He did. They made a date. There was a discreet nuzzling and some entwining. Then they broke with grins and she took a transport down to the nano bay where her physical workspace was. On the way down, she popped into the ship-wide feeds. There hadn't been any alerts, but it was good to know what was going on just the same. She also nabbed a packet from navigation. Target planet was still 69.8 hours away. She had plenty of time, but she also knew that since she'd started spending so much of it within the physical with Cassell, time was getting to be something that she had to be more mindful of. She'd had a couple of simulations that needed to have someone real-time checking in on the manual, and one had really gotten away from her. Fortunately, it had not been relevant to this sphere-building project, so it was only an annoyance to her. As she got to her bay, she nodded to Zeperol. They didn't notice. They were just anchored here. Maxine sat down and direct-linked into the printer programmer. She selected a level of commitment and a corresponding portion of her overall bandwidth that made up her total self slid into the task it was dedicated to. This was all about getting the nano-reclamators ready for the system they were headed to. The green planet, the life-bearing planet, was going to be Maxine's responsibility. She was pretty sure that Zeperol was in charge of the big gas giant at the edge of the system. That explained why it was the two of them in the bay. Deconstructing a gas giant was the second most challenging reclamation assignment, second only to a life zone planet. Everyone else had ice planets or the mineral-rich little nuggets of heat that were close to the star. As a life zone specialist, Maxine's task had a few different elements than other reclamation engineers had to worry about. At the end, it was the same basic process of claiming all the raw materials, minerals, metals, and gases for sphere construction, but since Sphere 3 had been built some 800 years ago, it was the policy of the Republic to always try to preserve and repopulate as much native flora and fauna as possible once Sunside was ready for habitation. It was the essential nobility of that policy that had drawn her to the work. Her people were not just plowing through the universe, digging troughs and throwing in the local life before they built their cities over top of their graves. They were building a diverse system of interconnected habitats. They were a polyculture under the single umbrella of the Republic's hegemony. And it was her efforts that made that a reality. The Republic's system of spheres and the communication nodes that provided near instantaneous connection to everyone under its rule, required an enormous amount of energy to sustain what was the greatest cultural achievement in the known universe, and only the spheres could harvest that much energy. But they did it with generosity. They did it ethically. They preserved as much as they could of the life and, when applicable, the folkways of the world they turned to their public's purposes. She was proud of her role in that process. It also meant that she got to be one of the few crew members of a construction armada that got to go planetside. That was most exciting when there was at least a semi-developed culture to catalog and integrate.
Obviously, it was often fraught. People could be resistant to change, no matter how obviously positive it was. But in the end, everyone got squared away with the minimum amount of cultural loss possible. At least on Maxine's watch, anyway. But the system they were headed to now, the one that was destined to become Sphere 17, had only one life zone planet, and it showed no signs of even minimally advanced intelligence. They had dubbed it Emerald Mountain. Based on what she'd seen from the advanced scans that had popped into her project-dedicated memory, Maxine was thinking of recommending they turn the resettled landforms into a preserve. The Republic tended to be resistant to turning whole planet's resettlements into public parks, but she felt like she might be able to make a good case for this one. There was some very interesting animal life down there. The lack of culture made it a little less exciting, but it also meant there would not be a diplomatic attaché accompanying her down, and there would be no need for her to dedicate memory space to diplomatic protocols in her own right. She could shunt those into network storage and free up a little more bandwidth for her own interests, or for spending some time with Cassell. She watched the Nano's progress for a bit, and when she was sure she had committed the right amount of bandwidth to the task, she tapped into the ship's crew personal node system and launched another significant portion of herself to where she knew her mother would be, namely Sphere 5, the Republic Art Museum experience in Fire Tree City. She materialized next to her mother who was looking at the Paratol light sculpture that was always their first stop when they came here, regardless if they were making a physical visit or if they were in the experience. Ah, there you are. I was wondering if you were coming. I can't stay long. We're about to launch the reclamation of the system I'm in. Oh, I forgot you were starting a new sphere. Her mother seemed to look just past Maxine for a minute. Ah, got you. You are far away. This was followed by an appraising look. The node on your builder ships these days must be something else. For you to be that far out of the standard network and still project so realistically. Maxine resisted rolling her eyes. Her mom's generation were always quaintly amazed at technology that had been functioning for decades, like it was always brand new. I guess that also means I'm not getting full bandwidth either. Some part of you is undoubtedly doing some much more important thing than spending time with your mother. Now, Maxine did not bother to suppress her eye roll. You know how it is, Mom. There's a lot of work to do. I bet Cassell gets total bandwidth. Mom! Her mother smirked. Her mom had, in recent years, opted for gender null. It made Maxine melancholy. Her mom had been primarily female for all of Maxine's childhood. Her mom seemed happy, and certainly, if they weren't, they could change back at any time, but the change made Maxine feel super aware of not being a kid anymore, and also the fact that her mom was getting older. As a matter of fact, she was feeling... She was feeling 
very sentimental about her mom and about being young and the passage of time and how their relationship had become more adult, which Maxine figured was just kind of another way of saying it seemed to her more distant. In fact, in fact, Maxine was feeling quite upset. She felt like she had this sudden flash, like her mother had not always been there. It was like her mom had died or something, which was irrational, but it was actually causing her to feel a little panicked. Had she had a dream about that? She checked her dream log and there was nothing about death recently, her mom's or anyone else's. Why was this feeling so strong? Why did she feel like she wanted to sob uncontrollably? Her mom was staring at her. Dear one, are you, are you okay? Suddenly, Maxine clutched them to her. She buried her face into her mom's neck and breathed in the scent there. I just, I just feel so glad that you're my mom. I'm so glad that you are here and that I can be with you. Well, honey, of, of course you can be with me. You're always with me. I know, but I just need to, I just, I need to tell you. I just, I need you to know that, okay? I need, I need you to know that I love you, all right? Her mother leaned back and looked at Maxine with a concerned expression, clearly trying to figure out where this had come from. Maxine didn't know either, until she saw him, just past her mother's shoulder, leaning in an entranceway, Mr. Humphreys. Then she felt her hands on her mother's arms, and Maxine was instantly and completely overwhelmed, and then the world went white before her eyes, and then she took a deep breath, a deep breath of foreign air on a strange planet. That was weird. She had a sense that she had been very, very emotional just a second ago. Maxine looked around. She was on the planet about to launch the reclamation protocol, she suddenly had this strong desire to drop in on her mom. But she'd just seen her mom a couple of days ago. They had gone to the art museum. Weird. Whatever. She shook it off and turned back to the task at hand. The nano-reclamators would preserve a certain percentage of all the unique flora and fauna on the planet, clearing the rest so that spear construction had plenty of room to work. Right now, it was just Maxine and a junior programmer named Epital who was assisting her. Once things got going, they would deploy teams of automated drones and on-site engineers to start putting the bones of the spear itself in place. Before you knew it, maybe less than half a solar year, there would be enough completed to start interior settlement. If her plans were approved, that settlement would be centered around an enormous preserve crafted from what was salvaged of this planet's life. She opened her field printer and started the generation sequence. In a couple of seconds, it would ding, and she would know that her first generation of workers had been cooked. She looked around at the rolling field. They were parked in a forest-ringed valley of tall grass. There was an enormous mountain looming in the distance. 
she would try to keep that intact. The sky was blue, the air was crisp, and there was suddenly something very wrong. Her head was full of alarms and beeps and flashing readouts. She was scrolling through them as quickly as she could, trying to figure out what was happening. Something, something was invading her, her brain. She ran protections, put up walls, spiked her immunity levels, nothing. Where did this come from? How was it happening so quickly? There was a wave of dizziness that brought her to her hands and knees. She was dimly aware of her junior saying something and then going suddenly quite rigid. Reports said that her organic brain was fully infiltrated. She started erecting firewalls around her biotech interfaces. Then, whatever this was, managed to turn her nanobodies. How? How had something organic done that? While she was still capable, she ran an analysis of what it was creating. She was seized by two things almost simultaneously, that she wanted to return to the ship more than anything in the world, and that she could not return to the ship under any circumstances. These two impulses warred inside her, but she was still holding out against total compromise enough to understand what was at stake here. This was the nightmare scenario for the Republic. Their society was totally interconnected, and each citizen of that society represented a point of vulnerability. So each citizen understood the unique responsibility that was thrust upon them. None more than those who dedicated their lives in service of the Republic's expansion. Some, more than others, Maxine's junior was making a run for their shuttle, but Maxine still had enough wherewithal to enact quarantine protocols. She hit the virtual switch. The junior programmer dropped to the ground, dead in his tracks. There were pops and clangs as strategically placed charges turned their shuttle into an unmoving husk. Her personal nodes to the ship were severed, and a rudimentary radio transmitter that she'd had all of her life but had never used suddenly powered up. It had its own power source and would broadcast Maxine's warning to anyone equipped to hear it for the next three centuries. This planet, and potentially this system, harbor a viral threat. Observe all quarantine protocols. This landing crew has been neutralized. Tell our families that we sacrificed everything for the safety of the Republic. Then Maxine lay down in the grass. The last thing the localized quarantine would do would be to shut her down. To kill her. Staring up at the sky, just barely visible through the veil of blue, was the enormous command ships of the Builder Armada. They would receive her transmission shortly. They would not risk all of civilization on one of many systems ripe for sphere building. She thought of her mother, so far away. She thought of Cassell, so close. Then she saw the bright flash as the ships of the Armada slipped into subspace. They were gone, never to return. She had just enough time for her heart to break for all that was lost. And then, blackness. Maxine 
opened her eyes as tears streamed down her face. They had moved deeper into the lichen and fungi-covered passages. They now seemed to be sitting on the edge of a pool of clear water. Something on the bed of this small pond was aglow. Something was alive, as Maxine was vaguely aware of a darting beneath the surface. Mr. Humphrey sat on a rock, gazing into the pool. As Maxine wiped the tears from her cheeks, he turned and looked at her. He waited patiently for her to speak. Finally, after some time, she said, If you want me to understand, then show me you. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.